0: All right, well, we got power, so we're meeting, praise the Lord, it's kind of been hit and miss the last couple of weeks here, sorry about that, but it is what it is. You can turn over in your Bibles to the book of Jude, all the way in the back of your Bibles, right before Revelation, the book of Jude, and we're in our ninth, or twelfth study, excuse me, twelfth study through this book, and... Um, Today we come to a point of transition in the book. It's a short book, but it's taking a while to get through it because there's a lot in it. And so we're just taking our time and kind of weaving our way through it. Um, We we find ourselves at verses 17 and 19. And if you're asking what chapter, there's only one. (laughs) So, verses 17 and 19. And we've come through this study up to this point, and uh, like I said, this is a turning point. You can tell by the word but, right there in verse 17, it says but. And you can go all the way back to verse 4 where it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about people who have crept into the church unnoticed. He's not talking about the people that attack the church from the outside. He's talking about people that attack the church from the inside. Uh, We would call them apostates. They're defectors from the faith. And um, he goes on to mention them over and over, as we've seen in these various verses. In verse 10, he talks about these people uh, verse 8, he says, these people. Verse 11, he says, woe to them. Um, verse 12, he talks about these. And verse 14, 16. And then all of a sudden, you come down to verse 17, and it says, but you. And so there's a change here. He, he wants us to understand that, okay, he's been addressing this, this issue, but now he, he switches, and he says, but you. And uh, look at these verses together with me. Um, Verses 17 to 19, he says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Uh, Let's just bow in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to give us wisdom as we look at these two verses tonight. Father, we thank you for this this word that you've given to us. Thank you that we can hold in our hands our own copy of it. And you've given us your Holy Spirit to be able to understand this supernatural book. And Lord, we pray that tonight you would give us wisdom as we, we look at how to live victoriously in times of apostasy. We see apostasy all around us. And Father, we pray that you would give us the faith and the understanding to benefit from your word tonight. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So he says over and over again, he points out these people, and then he comes to verse um, 17, he says, but you, and then in verse 18, he says they, one more time, um, but he he goes right back to but you in verse 20. So it's kind of a... Um, he's kind of summarizing what he's been sharing with us the last several weeks. And before we get into these two verses in and of themselves, um, if you stop and think about it, this, this book uh, was written at a time when it was very close to the birthing of the church, all right You remember, Pentecost was the, the birth of the church, and it was very exhilarating time to live. You had all these people getting saved. On that day, uh, on Pentecost, there was uh, 3,000. And probably some commentators say within a matter of weeks, there was probably 20,000 people who were actually in the Church of Christ. They were saved. And you look back at the book of Acts and you see this transformative book that, that basically tells us what's going on. How, how is he going to take Gentiles and Jews and put them into one organization, the church? And the book of Acts is a very foundational book in a lot of ways for the church, but it's also a very transitional book. And the mistake some people make is they take the book of Acts and they say, well, everything that happened in the book of Acts has to happen forever. Well, that's not necessarily true. Because these disciples needed some authenticity. They needed some kind of cred, if you would. And, And they were with Jesus. But now that Jesus was gone, how would people know that they should follow these disciples? And so the Lord gave them supernatural abilities. They were able to heal people. They were able to do all these miraculous works that the Lord did. And they, he, he gave that to them for a period of time to lay that foundation of the church. And so during that time, it was, you can only imagine, it was a very exciting time to live. But here we're told that the, the apostles, in verse 17, made some predictions. They made some predictions. And if you stop and you think of the early church, you could ask yourselves these questions. You know, what did the Holy Spirit show these apostles um Did he show them that Jesus would return? I think so. I think they they looked forward to that. Uh, did they understand that the one day the world would be destroyed? I think so. That was prophesied. Um, that sinners would finally be judged? Yeah, I think they understood that pretty well from what we could understand. that the church would be raptured, yeah. Uh, That they would be taken up to glory, yeah. You can go through all these doctrinal things and say yes, yes, yes after each one. What I don't think was on their radar was the simple fact that the church would defect. At least those in the visible church. That there would be this apostasy. That the church would actually, you know... It was given birth and all this miraculous stuff was happening and people were helping out each other and they were sacrificing their own food to give to their neighbor. It's an incredible time to live. And they, they knew all this stuff was prophesied, but they didn't see it coming that it's unimaginable that people would actually leave their faith, that they would apostatize from the faith. And this is what Jude has been warning us about is that some would pervert their understanding of Scripture, that they would take advantage of other people, um, that they would abandon Christ, they would abandon the gospel. Not all the church, mind you. It wasn't the whole church, right? God always leaves a remnant. (laughs) That's kind of how... I feel here on the, on the peninsula, we're kind of like a little remnant among churches that still teach the truth and, and still open Bibles, and you hear pages turning. That's important, okay? God always leaves a remnant. But I don't think they understood that, wow, after all this time of miraculous thing and days of worship and, and prayer and all these things, that this could actually happen. It was, it was unforeseen to them. And so Jude wants us to understand this. And it had to be the biggest prophetic shock of all to these who were in the early church that something like this would actually happen. Um, It's kind of like when you have a loved one or someone close to you come to faith in Christ and they're all excited about the Lord and they're just, you know, they're just a totally different person. You know, if someone said to you, Oh, that won't last. You know, you'd say, what are you talking about? They're a new person in Christ, right? You couldn't imagine a day when they would deny Christ. And if they're truly saved, they won't. But see, once again, we're talking about people who crept in to the church. And it's, it's amazing the, the conditions of their apostasy. I mean, how far did they defect? Well, it says they went as far as to mock and to scoff. And to pursue their own passionate lusts. And remember, these aren't people outside the church; these are people in the church, the visible church. And this didn't happen very much, you know. Twenty-five years after Jude wrote this, and and Jude wrote his epistle probably just months or maybe a year after uh, Peter wrote Second Peter. And remember, we said 2 Peter chapter 2. If you read 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude, it's like you're reading the same book. So J- Jude, who was not an apostle, okay, he was really quoting Peter, who was in a lot of this. But what's interesting, 25 years after Jude finished this, it was then, basically, that the Lord gave the apostle John some letters were some churches on the island of Patmos. When he was on the island of Patmos, God gave him a special revelation. And you can read about those, and I'm just going to summarize what they say in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He writes to the churches. We know this. When we were over in Turkey, we got to visit all the places of the tur- of the churches uh, with, with, with David Hawking. And on a couple places, you know, we'd get there and there's nothing there. You know, there'd be a, a, a till or a, a hill, they call it. And, and, you know, I'd say, well, I'm going to go, I am want to go up there. Well, there's nothing up there. You know, so it took one time I went up there and looked around and nothing there. So we came back down and said, I'm not going up the next one when, when he says there's nothing there. Because there was literally nothing there. But at one time, there was a thriving community there with a church. And those five churches specifically that he wrote to, and he here Jude writes somewhere before 70 A.D., so it's, it's right around this time, about 25 years later, John receives these letters from the Lord himself to the churches at Asia Minor. And you remember what they say. Um, one church, the church, the Ephesian church, what did the, what, what the Lord say about that? They left what? Their first love. Really? The church at Pergamos <clears throat> basically was in full-blown corruption, <clears throat> immorality heresy this isn't a long time after all this happened right just 25 years separates us here the church of Thyatira was so wicked that the Lord threatens to kill some of them that's how wicked they were the church of Sardis was basically totally dead uh, murdered by apostates who defected from the church and from the truth And then we all know the church of Laodicea, right? And what's the Lord want to do with them? Spit them out of his mouth, right? Because they're so lukewarm, they don't stand for anything. It just makes the Lord nauseous. And think about it, it's still the first century. This isn't, you know, too far gone when when Christ himself was here on earth. Um, And so between the writing of Jude and the writing of John, and even earlier than Jude, the writing of Paul, Paul, they were all reminding us, hey, this is going to happen. This is happening. This has always happened. And in spite of the, the warnings of the Lord himself about false teachers, about warnings from the apostle Paul, the prophecies of Peter, all this stuff, I bet you it still came as a surprise to many people that, wow, this is really happening Because it happened so fast, it came quick and furious, and the church was corrupted before it ever even got out of the first century. Think about that. And since that time, we've continued to see these defections, right, throughout history. But like I said, praise God, there's always a remnant There's always somebody that's going to stay true to the word of God. There's always going to be that core group of believers that sticks together, come hell or high water, it doesn't matter. They're going to honor the Lord with what he tells us to follow and what to believe. And so Jude, remember, he's saying you have to contend earnestly for the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. That's what he calls us to do. And they've always been, we've always been, as Christians, engaged in some form of spiritual warfare when it comes to the truth. The enemy hates the truth. The enemy wants to suppress the truth. Um, I was in my office earlier and I was just looking up just various churches. And, you know, I've noticed that a lot of churches don't even include the little tab anymore, what we believe. It's not even there. So then I think, well, okay, a good way to find out what a church believes is maybe go to the bio of the pastor. Not a mention of doctrine, nothing. It's it's pretty interesting. They've basically taken doctrine out of a lot of the statement of faith, and they basically stripped it down to, yeah, we believe in God. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Bible. And that's it. it. Yeah, it doesn't tell you a whole lot, right? I mean, that doesn't tell you a whole lot about that church. And so the body of truth that constitutes the Christian gospel has been severely under assault. It continues to be under assault from both outside and, more dangerously, inside the visible church. And this is what we see going on in Jude here. And there's always been faithful Christians that have stood up. And we looked at verse 12 in the past several weeks And he kind of points out there that he calls these apostates within the church, what's he call them? He calls them hidden reefs. In other words, you can't see them. They're below the water line. But if you hit them, guess what? You're going to create a lot of damage to the hull of your boat. And he says they're hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. In other words, they're right among us. They're sitting right next to you eating here in the Fellowship Hall after church on Sunday. So here we are, you see this happening, and they're defectors, they're apostates. There's ones that are outside the church too, don't get me wrong, but he's not talking about them. He's talking about the ones who basically abandon the Christian faith, they mock Christ openly, they deny him openly, and then they turn their backs and... You know, they they leave the church. He's not talking about them. He's talking about the ones that hang around and say, Oh, yeah, we believe what you believe. And they're the, the worst ones, really. And there's a very big problem with contemporary churches today who have a lack of discernment when it comes to spiritual truth. There's just no discernment whatsoever. Because they've stripped away all the doctrines. So there's nothing to really lay a foundation of belief upon. Uh, They want to make the the churches comfortable and the services non-confrontational. And so as an example, they they have these messages that contain no theology. I mean, just listen to Joel Osteen every week. What is it? I think just a couple weeks ago he said, you are powerful. That was the message. What, What in the world is that? And so when you stop and you see this, they're, they're severely doctrinally naive. And these churches are really defenseless against these people who creep in. Because they, they have no belief system anyway. Um, one commentator gives six reasons, and I put them there in your outline, for lack of discernment in churches today. The first one, he says, the recent trend to minimize the importance of doctrine. And I've kind of already spoken to that. There's a lot of people that think that, you know what, doctrine divides, so don't talk about it, don't teach on it. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, there's a lot of easy believism today in the church. There's a lot of people that water down the gospel and the gospel presentation just to generate results so they can look like their church is doing something. Um, it's a false unity, and basically it's it's built around an ecumenical disaster that a lot of people have Put together just to want to love each other despite what they believe. And that's always dangerous. That's always dangerous. Um, A false ministry is one that would be focused solely on temporary satisfaction and external success. That's all they're concerned about because it makes everybody feel comfortable, it makes everybody feel good, it's a fun place to be, it's all entertainment. Secondly, the church has become less objective in its outlook, substituting unconditional truth for moral relativism and postmodern subjectivity. And We see this all over the place. Instead of seeing truth in terms of, well, yeah, this black and white. Either it's true or it's not. Would you agree? I mean, you can't have something that's, well, eh. And we have everybody painting with a gray brush today. You know, nobody's willing to stand up and say, no, the Bible says this is wrong and this is right. Because if they do that, they're being divisive. Uh, But the Bible is clearly antithetical in its teaching. It makes absolutely distinctions between right and wrong throughout Scripture, everywhere. Between truth and error. Between saving faith and false faith. Um, the Lord Jesus, for example, was black and white. Think about it. He contrasted it this way. He talked about the broad way and the what? Narrow. The narrow way. Okay. He talked about eternal damnation and he talked about eternal life. He talked about the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. He talked about hate. He talked about love. He talked about worldly wisdom. He talked about divine wisdom. And you can go throughout the Gospels and see how he contrasts things into very... Uh, opposing things, but they're very black and white. He wasn't trying to paint with a gray brush. In contrast, our contemporary churches, unfortunately, shy away from anything that's absolute. You know, you can believe whatever you want and go to church. Um, Because they want to be tolerant. They want to embrace, as Ephesians 4.14 says, every wind of doctrine. Right? It doesn't matter to them. They'd rather have people in the pews than send some away because of maybe what they believe if it's not in accord with Scripture. Thirdly, as part of its contemporary evangelistic strategy, the church has abandoned its commitment to the power of Scripture and has become preoccupied with its own image. Uh, James wrote this, In James 4, 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward who? God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, guess what? You make yourself an enemy of God. I don't want to be in that category. Now, that doesn't mean we're jerks, okay? We we want to reach out to people. We want to be friendly to people. When people come here, we want them to feel welcome. But not at the cost of truth. Not at the cost of truth. And so we, we're kidding ourselves, I think, if we think that the key to winning lost is found in imitating how they act. You know, and you see this all the time. You, you see pastors, you know, in their in their 40s and 50s and 60s dressed up like a teenager. You know, they got more jewelry on their face and their ears than anywhere else, and tattoos and all this other stuff, and they're trying to be hip and their skinny little jeans and all this stuff. It's like, who are you trying to be? It's, it's kind of weird. But see, that is so important to them, that image. they got to have that image out there. Um, we have to be careful with emulating what the world dictates. Because if we're just going mim- to mimic this, the norms of society outside the church, why would anybody want to come to church? See, when I want, I, w- I want people to come into our church and, and look around and go, well, this is different. <laughs> this is kind of different. I've, I don't I haven't heard this before. Okay. Um, you know, church shouldn't be a place where you just link arms with everybody and sing kumbaya. You know, it should be a place where, you know what, the word is taught, the truth is is held up, and you know what? When when there's sin evidence, it's confronted. Lovingly, graciously? Well, fourth, he wrote the church's failure to properly study and interpret the scriptures. And we see this all the time. We see this all the time. Just ask yourself, if someone came up to you and said, why should I believe in Jesus Christ? What would you say? Or if someone came up to you and said, give me some evidence for the Trinity, what would you say? Or give me some evidence for creation. What would you say? Could you take them to scripture? Could you say the Bible says this? Or would you be caught kind of like stunned going, uh, I don't know. Pastor, elder, I need some help. No, We, we should be able to contend for the faith. This is what Jude wants us to do. As individuals, you have to study. This doesn't come by putting your Bible under your pillow at night, okay? It doesn't even come by listening to your little devotion on your iPhone for, you know, five minutes every morning. It comes by sitting down with your Bible, opening up and asking the Lord to help you understand what the Word of God says and then get into some good resources that can clarify your understanding is correct. And it takes time. There's no quick fix, You know, There's no theology for dummies book that you can just pick up and go, oh, now I got it all mastered. It doesn't work that way because this is not a normal book, right? This is a supernatural book. This is God's word. And so we have to have God's spirit and God's understanding to understand it. If we don't, you can go down the wrong path very, very, very quickly. And I see it all the time. Good, well-meaning Christians come up with the weirdest things. They believe the weirdest things. It's like, where did you get that? And they pull one little verse out of context that has nothing to do with what they're talking about, but they think, well, that's what God showed me. And they think, well, if God showed it to me, it must be right, despite what the rest of Scripture says. See, when you're studying the Bible, it's always important not just to read one verse, but you read that verse and say, well, let's see, this could mean this or this could mean that. If it means this... I can think of two or three verses that probably contradict that. So it probably doesn't mean that. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. So the best way to understand Scripture is with Scripture. And when you do it that way, it it, it keeps you kind of on that narrow path of understanding. Paul commanded Timothy in in 2 Timothy 2.15. He said, be diligent to what? Present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And then he says, how do you do that? Accurately handling the word of truth. Accurately handling the word of truth. And that's not just for pastors. That's for Christians. We need Christians in our churches that can accurately handle the word of truth. That's because they spent the time. They've done their due diligence. In Acts 17... Verse 11, the writer commends the believers in Berea. And he commends them for this in in verse 11. He says, because they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now remember, Thessalonica is a good church. They're good. Matter of fact, we're going through it on Sunday mornings. And Paul doesn't have a lot of derogatory or bad things to say about them. They were kind of the model church. But what he said was, They were more noble-minded, the people in Berea, than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with great, listen, eagerness. Eagerness. Examining the scriptures to see whether these things were so. See, the problem with our churches today, they pay some pastor to get up and speak, and everybody just sits there and goes, oh, good. And then they'll leave the church. There's no change. There's no. There's no self-examination. There's, matter of fact, I'm often tempted to come over here in the fellowship hall after church some morning, and go around and start asking people, "What was my sermon on?" Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you talked about. Well, you had a great illustration, Pastor. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, you know, exactly. <clears throat> are we? Are we? digesting? Are we listening? Are we eager to hear and be taught the word of God? This is, this is the book of life. This is God's word. And so he uses these Bereans as an example in Acts to really demonstrate people who have discernment. You know, They, can't, they couldn't have somebody just come up in front of them and start teaching some aberrant theology and they would just sit there. No, they would say, hey, you know what? No, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. The Bible says... They were, because they were steeped in the word of God. And we don't see that today. That's why people get up and teach all kinds of wacky stuff. And nobody says anything. Nobody calls anybody on anything anymore. And then fifthly, the general abandonment of church discipline in evangelical churches. And this is covered in Matthew 18. Gospel of Matthew covers this. When there's sin within the church, the local church, the community of believers... It's not to be swept under the rug. It's not to be overlooked. It's to be what? It's to be confronted. It's to be confronted in a loving way. But it's to be confronted. And the goal of church discipline is not to kick someone out of the church. It's to what? Restore them. To restore them to the fellowship. So if we had somebody in our church and it became known that They were sleeping with their neighbor's wife. Well, whoever that became known to, it'd be contingent upon you to go to that individual and say, hey, Charlie, knock it off. This is wrong. This is sin in the eyes of God. You need to repent. And if Charlie didn't listen, the Bible says, you know what? Then you grab a couple of the elders and you go. (laughs) Two or three of you go. And you confront Charlie. And if he still won't listen, what do you do? You tell it to the church. You tell the church, hey, (laughs) Charlie's sleeping with his, his neighbor's wife. I went to him. I took a group of men with me. He still won't listen. Church, go get him. Confront him. And if he still won't listen, the Bible says then you treat him as an unbeliever. You go to Charlie and you say, you know what, we love you. We're calling on you to repent. If you continue in this lifestyle, you're not welcome here anymore, period. That is hard. And it doesn't happen in a matter of days. Sometimes it takes months for that to unfold. But the goal is what, is to wake Charlie up to help him to realize that, wow, yeah, I am in the wrong here, and I need to repent, and I need to restore my relationship with the Lord and also with the church. But see, churches don't do that today. Who are we to call somebody else? You know Who am I to tell Charlie about it? i got issues in my own life. And, and, and that's the problem, right? I mean, trust me, if you had to be perfect to, to, to do what God is calling you to do, I don't think there would be any pastor that would ever do anything. Because of this abandonment of church discipline, there's all kinds of wacky things that go on in churches. And everybody is you know, surprised when somebody gets called out on it. That should be normal. That should be normal. And the sixth thing, the last thing here, the rampant void of spiritual maturity within its ranks. You know, we really need to grow, I think, in our faith more and more and more. And and to be honest with you, um, I wish a sermon a week would do that for you. I know it doesn't do it for me. It never has. Even a sermon plus a Wednesday night doesn't do it for me. You know, you, you have to be daily in God's word. You have to be growing. You have to be, you know, steeped in truth to overcome the the walls of darkness that come in against us constantly. Especially in the place we live. Because there's not a whole lot of light out there. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer says this in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, just assumed. In other words, you've been a believer long enough, you should be teachers by now. You need, instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He goes on, he says, you need milk, not solid food. In other words, you're you're a baby still. How long have you been a Christian? Some of you in this room have been Christian probably maybe longer than I've been alive. Are you still a baby? Are you teaching God's word? Are Are you growing? Are you eating solid food? He says in verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in The word of righteousness since he is a child so we we don't want it's fine to start off your christian walk as a baby christian right and so many times we excuse sin in in believers lies well they're just a baby christian yeah but they've been a baby christian for 20 years (laughs) you know knock it off you know they, they should know by now right I mean, it's kind of like if if you were raising your child. And, you know, here he is a 16-year-old boy and he comes to the dinner table and he's saying, Here, Johnny, let me get your bib on. Okay, now I'm gonna sit down and let mommy feed you, and you're feeding him baby food out of a baby jar. Anybody that would see that would go, what's wrong with this picture? Why are you doing this to your, your son? This is not good. That would be abnormal. But in the church, it happens all the time. You know, it's kind of like, I've mentioned this before. Amy Grant sang a song one time, uh, Fat Little Baby. And it was about Christians who just come to church and just gorge themselves on spiritual truth. They never lift a hand to do anything, they don't serve at all. They're all doing it, they're into, what's, what's, what's on the plate today, Pastor? hope you have some good songs, hope you have a good sermon, because I am hungry. And then they leave, do nothing, come back the next week, same thing. See, that's, that's where we're at. So the question that he comes to here in verse 17 is how do we contend for the faith? How does this actually work its way out? How do we contend for the truth? How do we preserve truth? How do we protect ourselves in these times of apostasy? How do we live victoriously in these times of apostasy? Well, he comes up here with three things, basically. We're just going to go through one tonight quickly. But he says, basically, first of all, we have to base our understanding on what the apostles taught. That's in verses 17 to 19. They already taught us something. We need to base our understanding on what was taught. We don't need some new truth. And then secondly, in verses 20 to 23, and we'll cover these in the coming weeks, the second point was build your life on God's principles. In 20 to 23, that's what he points out. So base our understanding on what the apostles taught. Secondly, build your life on God's principles, verses 20 to 23. And then 25, believe what God can do. He says if you do these things, three things. You're going to avoid spiritual disaster. You're going to live victoriously in times of apostasy. So let's look at the first one here quickly. Base our understanding on what the apostles taught. Base our understanding on what the apostles taught. And it's it's important that we understand what they did teach. Um, First point there, we have to, as to the importance of what they taught. He says there in Jude that we need to kind of remember. We need to call to mind. We need to understand what is going on. Well, what did the apostles teach? In verse 42 of Acts 2, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is what the early church did. And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. And so when we stop and and think about what the apostles taught, it was basically a a foundation of theology that they had received from the Lord. And you notice there in in verse 17, he says, but you must what? Remember. You must remember. You must call to mind. You know, you have to have some, it has to be in there for you to call call it to mind, right? In other words, you, you can't be, you know, like the, the kid that wants to go to take the, the test and he just prays, God, give me wisdom, but he doesn't study anything. Well, guess what? If, if he's praying for God to recall the answers and he's never looked at the answers, he's never studied the answers, God's not going to do that, you know? And so we need to study scripture. How do we survive triumphantly in times of apostasy? Um, remember, he's talking about those who are attacking the church from the outside. And Paul is saying, remember, the apostles told you this was going to happen. This shouldn't be a surprise. This is something that is, is prophesied. This is something that we even, in this book, we, he said this is going to happen. And remember, all the way back in verse 5, in Jude, he talks about it. Um, he says, I want to remind you Look at what he says in Jude 5, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so he goes through this whole thing, and we've studied this, we're not going to go through it again, but of how the examples of the people in Egypt, and then he goes on to describe the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and then he goes on to uh, describe other, the other situations, and he gives them all his illustrations of people who didn't remember to do the right thing, and what they do? They got judged as a result of it. And yet here, he's saying, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles. Look over at 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Because Paul was a reminder too. I think any... Anybody who teaches God's word is a reminder. You're always up and you're telling people, hey, remember this. Remember that you're bringing things up again because people need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded. And he says in verse 12 of verse chapter one of in second Peter, he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. See, sometimes we need to have things brought back up to our memory, even though we're established in them. And he says in verse 13, I think it is right, as far as I am in the body, look at, to stir up, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. In other words, I'm going to die soon, is what he's saying, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to what? To recall these things. Okay, it's one thing to hold somebody accountable if you haven't taught them anything. But if you've taught them things, and now you're holding them accountable, you're saying, hey, remember these things. That's, that's what the Lord wants us to do. Um, so he says, but you must remember the predictions of the apostles. and." And these predictions are throughout the Gospels. We don't have time to go through them all, but just a couple. Matthew 24, verse 11, the Lord himself said this, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. The Lord himself said that. Um, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, um, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote this, for such men are false apostles, Deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Or in Colossians chapter two, verse sixteen, Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in the questions of food and drink, in other words, your, your daily lifestyle, or with regard to the festival or to the new moon or the sabbath. And he goes on and he he begins to talk about in that context about those who would defraud um, us of our prize by delighting in things like self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking stands on visions they've seen without any scriptural basis. He says that they were inflated without cause by their fleshly minds. So he points this out. Um, Paul in 1 Thessalonians warns about those who come with flattering speech. Second Thessalonians were warned that there's a, a mystery of lawlessness coming that's already at, at work. First Timothy four he he tells Paul tells Timothy that in the in the in the uh, latter times the Spirit explicitly says that there will be a time since the coming of the Messiah even to the end some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits the doctrines of demons hypocritical liars. He says in 1 Timothy, uh, verse 20, there, he says, uh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irrelevant babble <laughs> and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. 2 Timothy 3, he says, In last days, difficult times will come because corruptors of the truth will come, and they will. In chapter 4, he says they will want to tickle your ears. In other words, you'll want to hear them talk again and again and again. Why? Because they want to turn you away from the truth and turn you in to believe some myth. And then in in 2 Peter, verse 1, chapter 2, he says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false, pro- pro- false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And then Peter goes on in verse 3, and he says, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And so Jude wants us to understand that this is very clearly a fulfillment of what the apostles taught. And it goes on today. It goes on today. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John wrote this, They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they, wouldn't, they would have continued with us, but they went out from us. They apostatized, they left us, that it might become plain that they are not of us. See, and what Judah is saying, you have people within your church that you're eating food with that you don't even understand that they're apostate because they've crept in. And maybe they're saying all the right things. That's why in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John says, Do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 2 John 7 says, Many deceivers have gone into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh... Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. They're not for Christ, they're against Christ. And so when he gets to the point here, when he says, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles, or what they have said, in other words, what they have constantly taught, it's in the imperfect tense. They continually taught this, they just didn't mention it once. No, this is what the foundation of the whole faith was. And here you have, on occasion after occasion after occasion, this is what they were taught. And yet now, in the last times, he's saying, what, remember what they said. In the last times, verse 18, they said to you, there will be scoffers. There will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Um, 2 Peter 3 says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. It's almost word for word what Jude just told us. What does this mean, this, this, this scoffing, as to the instruction they gave about the false brethren as a warning? He says the attitudes they display, first of all, will be one of scoffing. They will, they, will, they will mock, they will, they, will, they will make fun of the truth of the word of God. What's interesting here is the word is only in these two verses in the, in the entire New Testament. He uses the word you scoffer, mock, and um, in verse 18 it's the same thing. And so a lot of theologians say well, he must be quoting Peter he's using the same word, and it's the only place it's really used. Um, and so he wants us to understand that, you know what, this is the attitude of someone. And you stop and think about a lot of these modern-day teachers and their, their focus on, on greed, on wealth, on health, and all this stuff. That's more important to them. And when someone points it out, what do they do? They scoff. They They mock. They don't have time for you because you don't believe like they do. And so when it comes to this attitude of, of scoffing, it's something that will, it means they treat the truth with, with scorn. They, they treat it with derision. Um, they mock what they can't comprehend. You know, I had a pastor one time, we were talking, the subject of election came up. He said, why would you even talk about something stupid like that? I can't understand that. Why would you even talk about it with people? And I thought, wow. I mean, he's mocking the truth. I don't understand it either. But I'm, I'm not going to downplay it that way. I'm not going to make fun of it. Remember what Jude said in verse 10. These people, these, these apostates, what do they do? They blaspheme all that they do not understand. So when you come to some theological point that you know someone can't comprehend, they, they make fun of you for even bringing it up. And so a lot of times, churches don't have defined theology when it comes to the gifts or when it comes to eschatology, what happens in the end times, or even a lot of times in their own doctrine of, of salvation or even hell. They'll say, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, A lot of people believe different things. And they give you this generic answer to every question. Why? Because they don't want to give a defined answer because if they give a defined answer and you don't agree with them, you might leave their church. God forbid. Whereas I think a biblical church puts all that stuff out there so that will act as a filter. Right? I mean, that's what we need to do. We need to protect the body of Christ. So it's truth that these people once professed but they didn't possess. So it's very dangerous. They look like believers, and they're, they're right here in the midst of us. And he says, in the latter times, this is what's going to happen. And you say, well, when are the latter times? The latter times is it, well, any period after Christ left the earth. We're in the last times. It doesn't mean something future. We're, we're living in the last times right now, beloved. In Hebrews 1.1, the writer says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Then it says, but in these last days, guess what? He has spoken to us how? By his son. See, the problem with a lot of individuals today is they're not, they're not satisfied to have this Bible that God gave us. They want something new. They want something fresh. So you hear people all the time, God gave me a new truth. <laughs> well, that's That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Have you mastered this truth yet? I don't think so. Maybe maybe work on mastering this truth before you start looking for some other truth. And so the attitudes they display are one of scoffing. Secondly, the ambitions they have, and these go quickly, they follow their own ungodly passions. See, these mockers, these scoffers, they're always driven by the same thing. They're driven by ungodly lust. They're, they're driven by worldly desires. They mock the law of God. You know, a lot of these people in this framework, they don't want to deal with the coming of Christ. They don't want to talk about it. Why? Because they realize when you talk about the coming of Christ according to Scripture, you're talking about the judgment of God. They don't want to have any thought of having to give an account for what they're teaching. You know, they're perfectly fine with going on TV and saying, hey, if you just sow more of your money, give it to me, give it to me. In my ministry, so I can go buy another Learjet or a bigger house or Whatever. And people do it just constantly. They do it because it works. That's how naive people are. And none of that theology is true to what the word of God says. I mean, I always had a problem with that when I see the guy on TV, you know, begging you to send in. And sometimes, you know, I, I didn't have a whole lot going through school and stuff. And I'm thinking, what if it's true? What if I could send the guy 10 bucks, and somehow then he'd unleash the, the, the skies of heaven, you know, the treasures of heaven on me, and all of a sudden, I'd, you know, it'd be raining dollars in my dorm room or whatever. Just what if it's true? And then I thought, wait a minute, if that's true, and that would work for me, why doesn't it work for him? Why is he begging me for money? I mean, the guy's got a Learjet, he's got a million-dollar home, or two or three, He's on TV. I mean, why is he asking me for money? You know, it's kind of the same thing with politicians, right? I mean, you get those stupid little texts and emails. I always write back. I know it doesn't go to anybody. You got more money than me? No, I'm not giving you a dime. <laughs> I don't care who they are. It's an endless pit. Invest in something, invest in eternity, right? Invest in the kingdom. But see, these people are all focused on their own greedy desires. I mean, if you want to understand a preacher, a pastor who's sincere in their heart, just examine what they talk about. Examine what they teach. If it's all about material prosperity, if it's all about, oh, just have freedom, you can do whatever you want in Christ, It's all about personal satisfaction. It's all about fulfillment. It's all about being powerful. You got your answer. You got your answer. The prosperity gospel is a form of justified lust that mocks, really mocks those who truly hunger for righteousness. And we shouldn't be fooled by that. They follow their own ungodly passions. Thirdly, The antagonism they cause, they divide. They divide. In Romans 16, 17, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those, listen, who cause divisions. Watch out for them. Be on the lookout for them. And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And then he simply says, avoid them. Avoid them. Have nothing to do with them. Verse 18, he says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. He says, don't have anything to do with those kind of people. And yet, I hear Christians all the time, well, you know, I know some of this theology is wrong, but I just like the way he makes me feel when he talks. He's such a nice little boy. Teeth are so white. It's got such a beautiful smile. Be careful. Be careful. See, they're always the ones who claim to have the Spirit. They're always the ones that, you know what, when anybody disagrees with what they teach, right, and you point it out, you're the one causing division, not them. Even though they're not even in the realm of truth, you're the one because you're pointing it out, they turn it on you. The verb here that he, he uses when he, he speaks of, of this division that happens here, and it happens only here, it's the only place it's really used, it, it really means that it, it makes a, a distinction. Um, they create such a divide They make such a distinction of of something here. And that's what the effect of false teaching is. False teaching basically separates, it divides truth, right, from lies. It's it's like, well, we don't want you to know the truth. We're going to teach you what we want you to know. And they make themselves out to be superior. They make themselves out like they have the only message from God. In verse 12, you see what they do. In verse 12, he says, They're hidden reefs at your love feast. They feast with you without fear. Look at shepherds feeding themselves. What's a shepherd supposed to do? Care for the sheep. But these guys are just gorging themselves. They're waterless clouds. They're swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead, uprooted. I mean, he he goes on there. And what do they do? They despise authority. They, no one can tell them that they're wrong. Because they're all about thinking that they have a direct line to the Lord. And they call you out when you point it out. When you say, hey, wait, you know, you're teaching the scripture wrong. They'll, they'll, they'll blast you. You know, Get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, that's how bold they are sometimes. Yeah, don't touch God's anointed. They rip that out of context, and they say that all the time. Exactly. But in verse 16, Jude tells us what they're, they're really like. They're grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters. Have you ever listened to Jesse Duplantis? Talk about a loud-mouthed boaster. I mean, sometimes he can be kind of actually funny. He's got a weird sense of humor. But he's just a loud-mouthed boaster. Showing favoritism. Why would they show favoritism? To gain advantage. That's their whole ploy. They're arrogant. Apostates always are arrogant. They're condescending. They're kind of like the Pharisees in Jesus' time. And by the way, the word Pharisee basically means to separate. It means to divide people who divide themselves off. Well, we're not going to have anything to do with you. We're, We're going to have our little group over here. You know, we'd never associate with people like you as they look down their self-righteous noses. And see, Jude says these apostates are the same thing. They think they're up here. But look at what the Word of God says. The the authority upon which they operate, he he calls them um, worldly people. He says, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, worldly people. They're natural people. Um, That word sukikos in the original language means just natural. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 when he says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are what? Folly to him. And he is not able to understand them Because they are spiritually discerned. Think about that verse next time you're sharing the Lord with somebody. And their eyes are glazing over and they're not getting what you're saying. And you're trying to pound it even harder. They're they're spiritually blind, beloved. They they can't understand what you're saying. They don't understand their need for a savior. They don't think they've done anything wrong. And so when you say to them, don't you want to repent? What are you talking about? Don't you want to turn away from your sin? Why would I do that? I enjoy my sin. It's kind of fun. They're they're spiritually blind. They don't understand the things of God. We have to pray that God would take the blinders off. We have to ask that God would give them the light. And so this suhikos means soul. Literally, it means they're sensual, they're soulish, They're physical about everything. And he even calls them animals earlier. He's like, they're just like animals. (laughs) Whereas the last thing here, and this is the authority upon which they operate, they just go by what they want. It doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. They're not concerned with, wow, what if this little old lady that's sending her last $15 in to my ministry... Can't pay her PBG&E bill and it's going to freeze to death in the middle of the night. Doesn't matter to them. They don't care. No, no concern at all. But it says here, lastly, the absence of any spiritual life. Look at what he says. He says it's those who cause divisions, worldly people. And then he says this devoid of the spirit. Just to be clear, Jude just wants us to understand there's no. Numa there. There's no spirit there. I mean, that's what allows us to have relationships, to, to have reasoning, to be able to communicate. It sets us apart from animals. Okay? Our, our soul. And the apostates are, are not Pneuma. They are sukikos they're, they're just pure flesh. They don't have anything spiritual to offer. They're focused on what makes them happy. And in Romans 8, verse 9, Paul points this out. He says, you, however, talking to believers, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, he says in verse 9 of Romans 8. In fact, he says this, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, See, this is what people in the church have to start understanding. Just because you come to a building that's called a church doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't mean you have the Spirit of God. So Paul says, hey, if you're you're not in the flesh, Christian, you're in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says this, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not what? Belong to Him. In other words, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. No if, ands, or buts. That's just the way it is. So if you find yourself reading your Bible and you're just frustrated because you can't understand anything, and you have no lack of desire to pray or to study or to fellowship with other believers, you're just doing it as a check off the box, come to church kind of thing, you might want to re examine are you really a believer? Because there's a good chance you probably aren't. I mean, this is what Jude is saying. He's, He's wrapping his hands around all these apostate teachers. He lines them all up and basically he says, you know what? First of all, you don't know God. You don't know truth. You don't have life. You can't lead anybody into truth. You're not spiritual. You're not elevated like you claim. You have no spiritual life. You're devoid of the Spirit. The truth is, you're, you're fixated on your own desires, you're sensual, you're soulish, you're, you have no Holy Spirit, you're a fraud, you're a, fr- a fake. That's, that's what he's telling us. And yet they parade themselves around like they're sitting at the right hand of God. They may pastor churches, they may head denominations, they may head movements, councils, world religious leaders, whatever it might be. But they're frauds. They're dominated by their own lustly desire, their sensuality, and they're devoid of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the twisted kind of Christianity that's all around us today. And that's what we have to be aware of. And that's why Jude is sharing this with us so that we don't fall prey and that we can live victoriously in the times in which we live. The apostles said they were coming. He gave us these characteristics to identify them once they're here. And you have to remember what the apostles have told us. We don't want to fall prey to this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the words of Jude tonight that he warns us, Lord, that these apostate teachers are coming. They're already here. They've been here for hundreds of years, really. And they've always been here. They were in the throne room of of heaven, really. There was was rebellion there. There was rebellion in the garden. It's always been part of what we've known spiritually here on this earth. And yet, Lord, you give us the ability to protect ourselves. And, Father, really the protection that we have is our own education, our own understanding of your word. That it shouldn't be something that we delegate to somebody else. Well, they can learn it for me. No, it, it takes each individual time and effort to study and to understand what the Word of God is is saying to us and how we can apply that truth to our lives as as a barrier, as a guard against these false teachers. They're all around us today, everywhere. And Lord, we pray that we would stay faithful to you, that we would be energized, that we would contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered. And Father, we pray you'd give us wisdom as we live out our faith the rest of this week. I pray for all who are here tonight, if there's some here who maybe hasn't placed their faith, their trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, maybe tonight is the night that they cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I know I've done bad things. I know I've done wrong things in your sight, and I, I pray that you would forgive me. I want to put my faith, my trust in your Son, sacrifice for my sins. I want to turn to Christ. I want him to be the Lord, the Savior of my life. That's a prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart that God will answer. And he'll give you that Holy Spirit that you don't have now. And then he will open up the word of God and you will begin to understand and be able to live in a way that's honoring to him. So Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.